Well, we don't really know all the side effects with the COVID vaccine, but I think we just need to give it and then we'll, we'll see what what comes from that. And it's like, to me, being an intellectual, that was one of the most unintellectual things I've ever heard. Well, hello, everyone. Rebecca Hardy, president of Texans for Vaccine Choice here, here with another episode of TFEC Shock Callers. I am so excited about our guest today. Uh, Dr. Randy Nadu is one of our uh, beloved uh, providers uh, for our families here in the DFW area of Texas. And so many of our families know him. To know him is to just love of what his office stands for, what he stands for, and what he's trying to do to really build a healthy the a healthy child population here. So, I will. I, I'm just going to kind of hand it over to Dr. Nadeau to um, introduce himself, to give his bio, and um, kind of why you know tell us your story. Why do you care? Who are you, and why do you care about providing patient centered care to your to your population? Yeah, I think the, the backstory is always important, right? It tells you how you got here. Um, I grew up in Garland, so I'm a native of uh, the DFW area. Got a chance to see it grow exponentially over the past, I think, 47 years old. And uh, I think my passion early on in life was to play football. So after I finished up at South Garland High School, I uh, went off to University of Miami in Florida, walked on there, got a chance to play with some great uh, teammates, Hall of Famers, uh, now in the, uh, finished up with their NFL careers. And um, fortunately, I did well on the MCAT and uh, my biomedical engineering degree and kind of prepped me for going to medical school since the NFL wasn't calling my name. <laughs> and um, so we uh, get to medical school. And I, I think the big thing there for me was I love uh, being around kids. My, my wife says that I'm a big kid. So uh, I kind of knew what profession I was going into. It wasn't like I had to figure out what I wanted to do. And I was very fortunate during that time that I got a, a scholarship through the Air Force, through the Health Profession Scholarship Program. Went to officer training school right after I finished up at University of Miami and um, was, a, was an officer um, while in medical school. And so as I finished up with medical school at UT Houston and, uh, and then doing my residency at, at Children's Dallas, I was probably one of the few residents who spent their fourth year of medical school just doing all pediatric rotations. Again, wasn't trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I knew what I wanted to do. So I came into my first year of internship, got probably a little bit ahead of the game. And um, I, I think one of the things, and we could talk more about this, but residents really get trained in a much more like hospital type of setting and we don't really get that intense training in the outpatient setting of being a primary care physician. So while children's didn't prep me as well for that part, my Air Force career really did. And uh, when I was stationed out at Dias Air Force Base in Abilene, Texas, I was the only provider there. Um, there was nobody to kind of lean on and ask questions about. I was the go-to. And uh, so that experience 
is probably very different than most pediatricians who come out of residency and go into um, a practice or, or, or work in a hospital setting. And during that time at, at Dias Air Force Base, I got to be the officer in charge of the vaccine and immunology clinic. So that allowed me an experience with dealing with allergies. It, it dealt with all of the active duty population in terms of vaccines, anthrax, smallpox, um, and all of the other vaccines that our, our active duty got and civilian sector as well. And through that experience and being the allergy extender, when I finished up with my commitment, because my wife, my family, they all were back here in Dallas while I was in, in Abilene. So I knew I was coming back home and I had to find a practice that was going to kind of fit this person that I was now. And I, and I couldn't just join a traditional practice. And, you know, the Lord led me to uh, practice in Frisco. And from there, the Lord pushed me even more into starting my own practice in, in 2012. And so that journey from 2012 to now is where I am. And, you know, we can pick it up from there to kind of talk about the, the things that we want to address today. Well, wonderful. Well, I guess, you know, why do, what, what is it? Do you have like a specific story that really shines a light on where informed consent and uh, with vaccination really kind of shaped your uh, philosophy to care? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think more than anything else, it, it's personal. You know, like a lot of physicians who go into this area of functional or biomedical medicine or holistic medicine, they've had a loved one that has been, you know, um, significantly impacted. Mm-hmm. I think for me, it was me. It was my own health. And I didn't recognize it at the time when I was going through it. Um, as I go back on that backstory of when I finished up at the University of Miami in Florida, I was a good athlete, right? Best shape of my life. Went to Montgomery, Alabama and went to officer training school, got commissioned. I was a distinguished graduate, one of the, the top graduates there. And but we we got our shots. We got vaccines while we were there at Montgomery, Alabama. It was a lot of them. I just remember very vividly being in a shot line and multiple shots in both arms. I have my shot record. I go to University of Houston, uh, UT Houston. And something happened where my hepatitis B titer wasn't showing up as uh, like prote showing protection. So I had to get multiple rounds of hepatitis B while I was at UT Houston. And during that time, um, I started falling asleep in class and, and I've, I've never been one to fall asleep, right? I, biomedical engineer, intense, uh, you know, curriculum. So I knew something was kind of like off, but I didn't know, I didn't know what. And I had all of this allergy related issue that I never had before. So fast forward it from medical school, not really having resolution other than maybe taking some allergy medication I get into my Air Force career and I'm about to be deployed. Um, I think it was to Balad. And so we had to go to survival training down there in San Antonio. And so I had to get more vaccines. So then I come back to Dias and we're doing all of our physical fitness training. And I start to wheeze. I'm, I'm having like asthma and I've never had that before. And I'm just like, what, you know, what's going on? And, um, I wasn't in a horrendous health at that point, but I just knew I, I, I didn't feel right. And then 
on top of the the wheezing issue, um, just again, constantly getting sick. I think I took like maybe four or five rounds of antibiotics in those four years uh, each year. And there's a gentleman whose name is Harvey Karp, Dr. Harvey Karp, and he wrote the book, The Happiest Baby on the Block. And he came down to Dias Air Force Base to do a guest kind of speaking engagement to the parents at Dias Air Force Base and kind of help them understand how to calm down a um, fussy infant. And I was the liaison, but I was sick during that time. I think I think I had flu or, or something along those lines. And when Dr. Karp left uh, Dias Air Force Base, he contacted one of the individuals like, you know what, you don't ever put me around Dr. Nadu again because he got me sick. And um, I thought about like, you know, coming on to this um, podcast today. And one of the things is, is that we, we want a workforce. We want people, we want kids to be at school every day. I, one thing I tell our staff, our team is one thing you can never substitute for is availability and attendance. Like that's just something that's like an effort thing. You don't have to be intelligent. You don't have to have aptitude. You just have to show up. And in all my years of uh, elementary school through high school, I missed one day because I actually threw up that day. It was like Valentine's Day, I believe, in elementary school. So I threw up in the classroom, so I had to go home. That's the one day that I've missed. Wow. And my younger brother didn't miss any days of school. So it's kind of like in our DNA to always be available. And um, the, the, there's one time at Dias Air Force Base where the nurse practitioner that I work with, she said, you know what, Doc, you look horrible. You need to go home. And it was during that time with Dr. Karp. But now that I've removed myself from 2010 when I separated from Dias Air Force Base, to now 2024, I'm in the best health that I've ever been in. And I think a lot of that has to do with, I stopped the vaccine process with me. The Holy Spirit has really convicted me of that. The Holy Spirit has convicted me of that with my children. Um, Each of my children has been less and less vaccinated. My oldest child went through a lot of health issues and he wasn't even in childcare, he wasn't even in daycare. And I remember taking him to have to do breathing treatments. One time I had to take him to the emergency room because he had a fever for a pretty long period of time. And they had to cap them. Fortunately, they didn't have to do a lumbar puncture. But those were all very memorable moments for me. And I'm so fortunate to get to see like in my own children, not just with my children, but also with our patient population, that my youngest daughter is the healthiest of all my children. And I have seen that in the practice. Um, going back to Dias Air Force Base, I had one mama, she, she homeschooled her children. And she told me, she said, Dr. Nadu, I'm, do- I'm not doing any vaccines. And at that time in my life, I'm like, um, I, I, I'm definitely, my mom didn't raise me to, um, to shun people. So I was always very open to, you know, like, I'm a physician, right? I, I need to take care of anyone. I, I'm, I'm not supposed to have any kind of bias in that. And so I kind of left it at that and I just observed her children and they were very healthy, very mannerable. And then we get to you know the DFW area and I start practicing in 2010 and I have a lot of 
mamas and dads who say that they don't want to do anything with the vaccines. And again, I just take the stance of I'm going to take care of you. At that moment, I wasn't like convicted that, you know, this vaccine issue is an issue. But from 2010 to where I am now, I have seen the children who have had the least amount of vaccines be extremely healthy. I was very concerned in my early career of like, okay, we're not doing the homophilus influenza B vaccine. We're not doing the strep pneumonia vaccine. That we're going to have to worry about a child having meningitis and ending up in the emergency room in the hospital and, you know, the fallout from all of that. And that wasn't happening. I wasn't seeing that. So those things really like kind of convicted me and made me continue to ask questions since about 2010, probably a little bit earlier than that. And then obviously reflecting back on my own health since 2000 and probably about 1999, right? So we've done some individual like research into our practice with our patients and we've seen that play out. And I, there's a book now out like Vax Unvax that the Children's Health Defense um, Fund has put out. And it's a really good book. It, it, it kind of affirms a lot of the things that we see from testimonial and clinically. And then from some of our own internal data that we've collected. So we're going to continue to stick to this um, philosophy of care um, and continue to have positive outcomes. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll continue to grow as a, as a company because I think that the message is out f- from just families talking. You know, we don't we don't do a lot of like advertising and promotion. We don't need to do that because we don't need to grow <laughs> more than what we already are. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, that, that's where we are now. It's funny because if I hear one complaint about your practice, it's be- it's that y'all are too busy. And it's <laughs> like, okay, this is a good problem to have, right? I mean, it, that's, you know, but it's, uh, you know, it's... it's yeah, it, it's the challenge. It's, it's a challenge, challenge, correct. Yeah, right, right. Well, let me ask you, because, you know, we get uh, doctors reaching out to us a lot saying, you know, I'm afraid about the Texas Medical Board, you know, if I start, you know, diving into this or if I start writing exemptions, tell me about, like, if you can just speak plainly, have you had to deal with the Texas Medical Board, the TMB, and what was the outcome of that? Um, I, we had uh, one occurrence of uh, a vaccine-related issue, and um, again, God willing, thankful, um, the attorney, um, that, that we had and who helped me in other situations, like with my religious exemption for vaccines. Um, we, we moved past that because I think the main thing, and again, we live in a great state in Texas with the philosophical exemption and the medical exemption. We, we really want the discussion to come from the family, right? And so if the family makes the decision, they, they make the decision, right? Now, we have some some situations where we feel like if a parent wants to do a real standard schedule of vaccines, which really is not the norm because most of the families that find us don't want to do the, the standard schedule. But if they do, we try to do things extremely slow um, and space everything out. We try to do one just one vaccine at a time. We don't carry any combo vaccines other than 
the MMR and the DTaP um, because the combo vaccines have an exceptional amount of aluminum in them, so we, we avoid those. But I think when we do that, coupled with some of the other genetic testing that we do, allergy testing that we do, we really try to tease out those patients who won't or, or who are not responding well to the vaccine process. And we try to tell the parents, this is something that we have in our internal education with our, our providers and our, and our practices. Pediatrics in the first two to three years of life is a lot of like what I call the mundane things. It's like ear infections and it's coughs and it's sore throats and it's uh, picky eating and it's skin issues. And I think in the traditional medical model, we look at that as kind of like one silo, but then we look at vaccines in this other silo, but we never think whether all of those issues that that patient is coming in with are interconnected. And so I try to train the providers to think that way. And so when we see a patient who's really, really ill, who's constantly coming in for appointments, we talk to the parents about, hey, maybe we want to slow down that process. And one of the things that I've learned in the, you know, as the officer in charge of the vaccine clinic and looking at immunology a lot more, there's a real um, gap in what we understand about what's happening with our immune system when we get a vaccine and all of these boosters. I don't know that all the drivers behind how the booster regimen came came upon us, but when you look at the package inserts that have the studies on titers and antibody response, you get pretty good antibody response with just one dose of a vaccine, right? So we don't want families to, to leave thinking, oh my gosh, I didn't do these three doses or these four doses, so my child is like not protected. We try to educate families about the subsequent booster doses are maybe to help protect you as you are getting older, maybe into the elementary school years or the junior high years or the high school years and, be, and beyond. So maybe if we looked at really spreading out those vaccines, then we're actually maybe being more uh, effective in how we're protecting the patient long-term to some of these vaccine preventable illnesses as well. So that's a whole nother aspect of trying to slow down the process. And one of the things that I learned, again, in my days at Abilene was we would have some active duty members and civilians that say, I'm not doing these vaccines. I've already done them. And we would check titers on them. And hepatitis B was one of them that they didn't have protection. Or polio was another one that maybe they didn't have protection. So I think that there's something to also be, um, you know, elucidated in all of the stuff that's happened with vaccines is how many adults that are out there walking around and don't have protection to some of these vaccine preventable illnesses. And are they, are they okay? Um, is it not a population that we're gonna you know, look at? Um, so I think there's a lot of other scientific questions that have to come from this whole vaccine process that we, we haven't done or, or, or we don't understand the implications of. Correct. You know, you bring up a really good point because you know I go all over the state and present um, you know, on various topics, including vaccine safety and something that always comes up because the vast majority of these audiences are, you know, middle-aged and higher adults. And 
I always say, you know, if you haven't had this complete vaccine schedule, you yourself are, you know, un or under vaccinated. And by far, most of your vaccines have likely worn off the ones that you got when you were kids. So this, the idea that we're putting the entire burden of, you know, this herd immunity on the children, it's just kind of absurd because they make up a small percentage of the population and the vast majority of us adults haven't consented to a vaccine in eons. That's right. And that's my my biggest kind of um, thing, argument on the herd immunity is that we don't we don't know what our adult population is like and and where they are with their level of protection. So, um, yeah. And and let's just talk about some of the um, ethical implications of putting the burden of this herd on the children. I mean, shouldn't it be the the adults that are providing, you know, the shield or what have you, this perceived shield or protection for the younger? It's it's we've gotten it so backwards as a society that somehow right. the children need to, uh, uh, you know, exactly. protect the adults. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of like, you know my whole premise of just being in medicine I feel like the Lord has really told me to, to, to be a protector of children more than it, it is about medicine, right? Like we need to be an advocate for the child because they don't have a voice. And if we don't speak up for them, you know, again, you can see with COVID there's been a, just a huge backlash, but the adults have a voice and, and children don't. And, and since this 1985, the, the national vaccine injury act, it's just, you know, I looked at my shot record when I was a child back in 1976, and I think I had a couple of DTAPs, and um, I think I had a polio and maybe an MMR when I was a little bit older. But I, when I, my, my mom kept my shot record, I had maybe seven vaccines when I was a year of age. These children now, when they're coming through the conventional medical model, you know, they're having somewhere between 35 to 38 total vaccines. We're not talking about the jabs. We're talking about each of those vaccines in that jab, right? Each of those different antigens. And it's a lot. And it, it, it's not even about the toxins. I know people speak about the toxicities of vaccines or the, you know, the mercury or the aluminum and those things. But I think there's an implication of what we are doing to the immune system. And, and there's been some really interesting discussions that have come out, like Bert Vandenbosch, uh, Dr. Yeden. And this lack of completely understanding the immunology in what it is doing to our other organ systems, that's the travesty right now in vaccine research. And I think that we have the technology to look at these things in real time to understand like, hey, if we give a vaccine, what's happening in the brain? What's happening to the heart? What's happening to the kidneys? What's happening to our skin? But I don't feel like that literature is available um, for us as physicians to be able to to, to go through. And... um, that's the gap. That is a gap. For sure. Well, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about um, the financial incentives that um, I mean, we, we, we spoke last week a little bit about this. And you even walked me through, you know, kind of the reimbursement structure of yeah. a fully vaccinated child versus a child that comes out of a well baby visit with you. So talk about a little bit and you can get as in-depth or not or high level as you want, but the financial pressure that you are under to mm-hmm. avoid in true informed consent um, and a high, you know, a compliance yeah. rate. You know, again, thank God that, um, I'm able to quote unquote be sovereign as a physician and, and have this medical practice. 
Um, I think that's one thing if, it, you know, if other physicians are watching this podcast is to not get caught up in like selling your practice to a big hospital network or big medical group. It's a challenge, right? It's a challenge to be the business person and the medical person. But I think that that onus of responsibility for us as physicians is extremely important to be involved on the business side. You might not be the greatest. You're going to make some mistakes. You may not even make the most money. But the most important thing is, is that you can look yourself in the mirror and know that you're doing the right thing by the patient and also by you. I think, and I had a good conversation with another physician that is, you know, um, looking at joining the practice. I think that the the burnout of physicians is not so much that we're working really hard and long hours. It's that we're not really getting to practice the way that we want to practice. Like we're not seeing the healing. We're, we're not seeing the positive benefit of being a physician. We, it's It's just constant sick care. It's Constantly seeing a parent tell you, like, my child's not well. They come back and see you again. They're not well again. Well, I don't know what to do. Let me send you to a specialist or let me refer you. And it's it's very pessimistic, right? It's, a, it, it's bleak. And so one of the things that has been the most rewarding at Shine outside of the financial component is just seeing kids come in and the parents saying, my kid's okay. They're not, you know, they're doing fine. We don't need a specialist. We don't need any medications. We don't need a prescription. But to speak about the financial part, I've thought about this a lot, being a small business owner. And I think one of the most challenging things for providers is the amount of debt that we come out with when we get through with undergrad in medical school, and then you know we get paid some in residency. And I think that a lot of um, physicians have to make choices on how they can pay their bills. And I'm very fortunate with my Air Force scholarship that I was really able to mitigate a lot of expenses with my um, medical school uh, tuition and, and board. And so I, I'm very fortunate. I did, you know, again, you don't, it's hindsight, but to look back at that, that allowed me to kind of create some freedom and flexibility in some of the decisions that I made. And so as a physician, when you do get into the practice now, when you are finished up with residency, you probably, to, to be the most ethical provider, you're going to have to live very humble. You, you can't have extraordinary expenses. And if people think like pediatricians get paid a lot, that's like very far from the truth, right? We're probably one of the lower paid, uh, you know, physician specialties. So when we run um, our practice, we have to look at like certain margins and we're not making a lot on the vaccine front. Right. I think that if you talk to the real honest business owner of a practice and you ask them how much money vaccines bring in, it brings in money because every time you do a wellness checkup, there's a lot of um, codes that we put on that uh, on that those CPT codes that on the fee schedules for different insurance companies, there's a value to that. Right. So if I have a two month old visit. And let's just say I have a parent who doesn't do any vaccines at all. And I compare that bill to the to the child who has gotten the rotavirus, has gotten the homophilus influenza B, 
has gotten the strep pneumonia, has gotten the polio, um, has got the, um, um, what's the other one? I'm forgetting. I, I think I said hep B. DTAP. Yeah, DTAP. The DTAP. When they've gotten all of those vaccines, that's like seven to eight antigens that you can put on the on, on, on that on that billing on that claim. And when you push that out to insurance, the insurance is going to pay you for each of those things. Now, the revenue might might be like two dollars here, three dollars here. Maybe it's ten dollars here. That is a net profit. But it's it's a net. It's, it's a positive. And when you add up all those patients, that's that's money. So I think that there has to be a whole revision of the economics of how to run a pediatric practice uh, and be financially stable, sound, right? And if I were to go into a traditional medical practice and tell them, like, hey, guys, do we do this differently with vaccines? The reason that you're going to get the pushback, I don't, it's, I don't think it's an ethical issue. I don't think it's like, oh, my gosh, you know, if we don't do these vaccines, then tomorrow this child is going to die from strep pneumonia. I really don't think that most of my colleagues think like that. I think it is really a driver by the financial component. Somebody's going to lose a job. Somebody's going to get paid less. There's going to have to be some downsizing that occurs. And we've been very fortunate at Shine that when we started this, we have financial projections and a financial model that suits what we're doing with vaccines. And I think the other thing that's really important on the financial side, too, is the longevity of the patient relationship. I think we have patients who get into junior high and high school that want to come see us. They want to do their wellness visit. They, they enjoy coming. They, they learn something. There's, there's something that we're providing to them. We're offering something. But I think a lot of families in the traditional medical model, they say, well, OK, after I did my four-year-old checkup, uh, why do I need to come back in? My... The school is not asking me to do any vaccines. I, I'm, you know, I'm caught up there. Maybe I'll come in if I need to do a school physical. But for the most part, a lot of those families they don't they don't keep their annual checkups. And so, um, we I think we we've created that kind of that model of sustainability because families do want to keep continuing to come see us. And I think maybe we don't make the money on the on the front end with all of the vaccines and you know clumping that all together, but we help to kind of do, you know, make up for that by patients that come to see us later on in life. And we still have, we have college students and, you know, even some graduate students until they come off of their parents' insurance that we'll continue to see because we fit their model of care that they're seeking. So that's the long answer to the financial piece of, um, you know, pediatrics. And I think too, um, the other last part is, We've done a really good job of training our nurse practitioners and physician assistants. And we have a few docs that have been with us and continue with us. But you can't be top heavy in a practice like what we have with a lot of physicians. Because the physician just doesn't bring in the level of revenue that, that's needed. Like you, you, you have to have the, the, the um, advanced providers that you can pay at a little bit lower um, uh, income level so that you can make this model work too. Right. And that's a, a, another big thing that, ha- you know, ha- has to be addressed. Very good. Okay. Next question. And that is what would you tell 
a a teenager or even a tween that might be um, saying, I want to be a doctor when I grow up, you know, is it worth it? You know, would would uh, time and energy be better spent pursuing a different field? What say Dr. Nadu? Oh, my goodness. I, I you know, you got to go into medicine, right? If, if I have a kiddo in, in my practice who's thinking about medicine, we need future physicians that that think this way. Um, we need, um, you know, advocates for, you know, bodily autonomy in, you know, the informed consent, like we talked about, um, living a much more like integrated, holistic life. Uh, we, we, we can't keep going down this path of the traditional way of training or thought process. It's not giving us the, um, the rate of return uh, that we need for our health. And so you're going to have to navigate it. You're going to have to find the proper institutions that will allow you to have that autonomy, especially when, when it comes to like the vaccine choice and decision. Um, and you're going to have to find institutions that really promote that type of a person, right? I tell families all the time, why do you go to an institution that is forcing you to do the vaccines? Why do you do that? There, there's a lot of institutions that are not forcing that. So you need to put your economy into those institutions and allow them to grow because those are the individuals that re- really care about humanity, right? And um, so I, I think you can navigate it. it, it it's just, it's gonna be hard, but we can do it. I tell my daughters all the time, we can do hard things. And, you know, I talked to a nurse practitioner that had graduated somewhat recently in the last, you know, four or five years. And, you know, she managed to get all the way through all of her studies without getting any additional, you know, she was fully vaccinated as a child, but she, you know, she said it was very hard, but that it was worth the battle. And, you know, she just kind of went into every day. I mean, unfortunately, she didn't have the luxury of being able to choose a program that was maybe a little bit more accommodating to, you know, individual sovereignty. But, you know, so she kind of just had a grin and bear it for, you know, a good number of years and said, you know, every day it was like walking into battle. But she stood her ground and was able to get to the other side. And now she has a beautiful practice and is able to practice how she wants. And it's terrific. But, you know, it is it is one of those things that I think if you can just either one, find a program that is to your point that is, you know, accommodating and understanding and actually wants to promote that kind of health is ideal. And if not, you just have to kind of say, you know, we got to suffer through and, you know, have some potentially have some battles and, you know, Mm -hmm. have to, you know, do hard things, but it'll be worth it on the other end. That's why I love, you know, First Liberty and what they're all about and how they really try to protect the interest of, you know, individuals uh, who are going through this. And I, and I think if we can have that confidence of knowing like what our rights are and what we can do with those rights, um, then we can we can affect that change, right? Because yeah, I always say, <laughs> if God bef- before us, you know, who can be against us? So uh, I, I have to stand on that. Amen. Yeah. Well, let's um, talk a little bit more, a little bit about a specific um, new. I don't even know if I want to call it a vaccine, but the CDC has added it to their childhood vaccine schedule: the new RSV shot for. Uh, newborns. I've already received reports that there's some hospitals that are giving it on day one with the hepatitis B shot. So 
Tell us your thoughts about the RSV jabs and how they may differ from other vaccines. Yeah, you know, um, I'm not going to sit here and speak from the rooftop like I'm the most knowledgeable about this one yet. Um, There's the Synergist vaccine that used to be out um, for our uh, NICU population uh, that had you know, chronic lung disease or um, congenital heart um, issues. And usually that shot series was done um, during that first year of life when, they're, when they depart from the NICU. And I have to refresh my memory on the uh, inner workings of the immunology for the Synergist vaccine. But when I did my most recent research on this new vaccine, this RSV, I don't I don't understand how it got the term vaccine because it, it looks like it's monoclonal antibody. It is. And so I, I'm, you know, all the way things have gotten changed in terms of definition and, um, you know, what what it's what it means to be immunized. Uh, you know, obviously, when you talk about like doing a vaccine, you're promoting your own body's immune system to help fight that particular antigen, right? So if you get infected, then your immune system can mount a a more appropriate response. But with monoclonal antibodies, you're not doing anything to your immune system. It's it's just, you're giving a a medication, right? Like you're giving an antibiotic, for instance. Um, So I don't know how it falls in that um, category. And that's, again, beyond my pay grade. (laughs) And... Yeah, it, I think for me, kind of in, in my intellectual journey as a physician and a constant like learner, I have been baffled by some of the comments that were made during COVID when the, um, I think it's ACIP, were meeting and convening. And, and I learned a lot of this through Dell. Big Tree, you know, on the high wire in some of his broadcast. And then it kind of took me down the trail of like actually going to the CDC site. But it's just very bothersome about how um, some of these vaccines just get approved. I, it's like just yesterday, I, I can remember a gentleman saying, well, we don't really know all the side effects with the COVID vaccine, but I think we just need to give it and then we'll, we'll see what what comes from that. That's like, to me, being an intellectual, that was one of the most unintellectual things I've ever heard. And it was, it was really, it was really heartbreaking, um, disappointing. And it just made me, again, think about like, where do these recommendations come from? Who's giving the recs? How much research is being done? Where's the data? What does it look like? And I think the really smart people in medicine, the really, really smart ones, they're the ones that kind of know that, hey, something's wrong and we need to fix it. But it's the ones that are just like got their blinders on are the ones who are not the intellectual. They don't they don't want to think about things. And I'm very thankful, blessed, you know, my mom, dad, me, my genetics that I've been allowed to be able to think a little bit more. So God bless the critical thinkers, I say. Yes. Yeah. You know, the thing we hear a lot when somebody re- reaches out to Texans for Vaccine Choice and they're saying, I need help finding a provider. I mean, the list of things that they have suffered at. I mean, we're talking, you know, laughing in the hallway, eye rolls, rude remarks. I mean, just berating of these families for just asking 
questions. I mean, the list goes on and on of the mistreatment of people that simply want to ask a question or to just say no without, you know, feeling like, you know, the weight of the world is going to come crashing down on them for simply saying no. What is your, like, what is, I don't know, how do you suggest that we as parents handle those situations? Um, yeah. You know, dealing with I'm, a child, say that, you know, a, a an individual does not live close within driving distance of Shine Pediatrics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What would they yeah. do? How, what is your best yeah. advice for these families? You, you know, the landscape has really changed in terms of the knowledge that the parent has now versus 15, 20 years ago. I mean, with the Internet, with podcasts, um, with social media, I, I always say, like, you know, there's a time back in medicine where behind the physician in his book cabinet was the information about health, right? And only he or she had access to that because they went through, you know, medical school and residency and got those different books or syllabus for those things. Now it's kind of turned now, right? The physician has it behind him, but the parent has it too behind them. So I really think that parents just need to go in and, you know, not just say like, hey, I don't want to do a vaccine or I want to slow things down or blah, 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 but come in with the literature and the research and show that other, that medical provider that, you know, you're not just coming like off the cuff on a whim, but you have your resources and hopefully that medical provider uh, will have the humility and some of them don't. Right. I mean, uh, as we just talked about the, the non-intellectual, the physician who's just going to kind of, you know, just do things. You know, there's some docs who they'll practice the same way from the day they graduated from residency to the day that they stop practicing. Right. There's no like increase in the learning curve. But if you have a doc who's a learner, um, you know, and, and, and wants to partner with you then I don't think that there's going to be that, that tension. Now, there's those other factors we talked about on the financial side, right? So you may have a doctor who's really open to caring for you that way, but they get the pressures behind them, you know, from the, from the bean counters or the person who's running that, 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 that business and saying, hey, we, 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 there's no discussion here. You got to do these vaccines during this time because we're losing X amount of money. But I think that that's a, you have to have that discernment as a parent if that is a a situation that is occurring. I think if hopefully you can find a small practice where it's individually run, I think in those types of situations, hopefully you'll find that provider that's going to be more open-minded. Very good. I mean, it is kind of a, you know, it's a two-way street. You know, how does a, a parent trust a provider who has landed so differently on this issue? But then, you know, I'm sure it's the doctors feel the same way. So. I don't know. How yeah. would you create that partnership when the well, the two parties think so differently about this one issue? You, you know, um, Rebecca, I would say that I think it's really important for any parent who's uh, has conceived and they're carrying their baby to really start talking to different physicians in the community and being very honest in that discussion so you can find that right fit. And if you can't find that right fit, you you have to recognize that battle that you are, are up against. But I think the great thing in Texas is it may not be that you'll find that doc like right next door to you. I think that, that's one thing that we have been very blessed with too. We have families that are willing to travel a long way, right? 
might be an hour, sometimes two hours. We have some families that travel from West Texas. Um, your child's health is like, it is the big, biggest asset commodity that you have, right? Your health is more important than even shelter and food and all those things. Because if you don't have your health, you cannot do anything at all. And so I really try to tell families like, you've got to find the right provider that is going to be in alignment with what you are trying to do. And if you find that right provider, it might be an hour or two hours away. You've got to make that drive because in the end, your child is going to end up being healthier and you're probably not going to need to utilize the medical system as much. So you're not going to have to make a lot of trips to the doctor. Right. But that's a, a you know, something to think about there. Very good. Thank you for that. I think that'll be very helpful to a lot of our families. Let me ask you this. If you only had 10 minutes with a, a new mom or a new dad, what resources or references would you give give to them um, as far yeah. as, you know, what concerns about vaccines you might share first if you only had 10 minutes? Um, first thing I would say is if you have a grandma or grandpa, uh, you know, they raised you. I think we have so many families now that are just kind of overextended and they're not around their nucleus family. So they don't have that support. So that would be kind of my number one resource. Um, I think most grandparents have the, the best interest of the kiddos. Now, sometimes grandparents might say, well, we fed you this or we did all these vaccines. But again, they don't realize how that, that those landscapes have changed maybe over the years. Um, then the next resource I think that has been very, very beneficial for me has been all of the stuff that Children's Health Defense Fund has done. Uh, you know, Brian Hooker um, and his uh, doctor's podcast, extremely, extremely helpful. Um, I'm a part of the Medical Association for Pediatric Special Needs. So anytime you can find physicians who are part of that organization, they're going to be really um, kind of forward thinking. And so that would be another like important resource for families is that Medical Association for Pediatric Special Needs. Um, I love the American Academy of Physicians and Surgeons, AAPS, another really great resource for families to kind of see which docs are, you know, involved in that organization. But that's kind of how I, how I would approach it. We have our resources, like different videos. We've got our internal kind of social uh, uh, platform that we have for our families in the practice. But um, those would be the resources that I would start with. Very good. And would your advice change if you were talking to a healthcare provider? Because we have a lot of healthcare providers on, um, you know, in our in our midst, on our uh -huh. you know email subscription list and such, and they, you know, oftentimes we get questions from them like, "I know why I stand for vaccine choice," but. They and they're they're oftentimes very transparent about why, but they always say I could use more resources. So is there anything so, any would yeah. your advice change if you were speaking to a fellow um, professional? So when I when I was um, in the Air Force from 2006 to 2010, I really took it upon myself. And again, that's probably being an officer in charge of the vaccine clinic. I read the textbook by Stanley Plotkin. It's called Vaccines. You know, he's, he's known as kind of the godfather of vaccines. Not that I'm in agreement with everything that he says. Um, and anybody who doesn't know who Stanley Plotkin is, you can go on YouTube or Rumble and look at the nine-hour deposition that Aaron Siri did 
with Stanley Plotkin. Very, very informative. But I think you have to understand how the vaccine process works. And you're never going to get that education in medical school. You're never going to get it in residency. So if you don't do that, then you're already behind the eight ball in terms of your ability to have a, a complete conversation about vaccines. Now, once you read that textbook and you've gone through it, now if you still quote unquote disagree or you know are not in alignment with the parents, you can actually talk from a place of like why you uh, disagree with the parent. But I think that's the biggest thing for me as a as a as a fellow physician to my colleagues is. And it's intense. It's a big book. It's a it's a textbook. But I think you have to do that. And another really good textbook is called Vaccines and Autoimmunity by uh, Dr. Yehuda Schoenfeld. Uh, that book is also a very a good, um, you know, thing to have in your in your in your book cabinet there to really become more astute at having the conversations about vaccines. Very good. Okay. Well, let's, this is probably my last like main question. And that is uh-huh. what are your top, I don't know, say three to five supplements or remedies or what have you that you recommend that all parents have at all times for their small children? Yeah. You know, I'm probably going to go back to nutrition first, right? You know, let um, food be that medicine and medicine be that food. Um, I think where a lot of my current research is going to is the, the seed oils, right? You may have heard some of that. Maybe, maybe some have never heard of that concept before. But the way that seed oils are made in that process, it has done a lot of damage to our body's physiology over these past 50 or 60 years, right? It's, it's kind of like really rooted in the fast food industry. So just as we talk about like the tide is changing uh, with vaccines, the tide has to change in the in the in the fast food industry to make sure that we're pushing these companies to make better decisions about the quality of oils that are being used. You know, I didn't even know like McDonald's used to make their French fries in tallow. And now, like kind of looking at the research and seeing that I'm like, oh, my gosh, that that's what we need. Right. We. We need, like, you know, animal fats have been uh, really um, ridiculed. Uh, they have been talked down upon. I, I just listened to another podcast on wise traditions in the Indian culture. And I sent it out to some of my family that live in South Africa. I'm like, it's like the elite want you to not eat meat because they know that it creates so much vigor in you and allows you to think more clearly. And so I think that that's like, if you talk about supplements, that would be one of my first ones is to get the seed oils out and really encourage a lot more animal fat in the diet. And I think that, uh, you know, being a minority, um, it really breaks my heart about what happened during COVID and um, how, uh, you know, we were told to like stay stay indoors and when you have dark skin, you have to be outside. You you it, you you become sick when you're indoors. And I think that the people of color and the 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 deaths that happened during that time, a lot of it was a direct issue of that. And vitamin D is so important. Cannot emphasize that enough. 
I've never worried about like vitamin D toxicity. We've dosed children at very high amounts, sometimes 10 to 15,000 units a day when they're ill and they do very well. Um, and that, that, when I say that dose, it matters by age, but you know, we've gone that high. So I think that that's a really important one. We have a homeopathic that we use uh, called Briar Rose. That's been a really nice one to strengthen the constitution of uh, patients. So we use a lot of elderberry. That has been a really uh, kind of foundational one in the practice. Wonderful. Well, as we wrap up today, Dr. Nadu, I want to give you the opportunity of one to just uh, inform people on where to find you if they happen to be in the DFW area, where to find you. And if you just have any last words of hope or encouragement or anything else you want to say um, to wrap us up today. Yeah. So, um, you know, our office, we have the location in Richardson and Fort Worth and God willing, we'll have one in um, the Prosper area. And we're continuing to grow. I mean, I think that's the one thing that, again, the Lord has really put on me is, is to not stop growing because we never want to be a, a practice that says, like, we can't see you. Right. And I think that hurts our, our staff some. And I stress them out because I say, like, no, we can't turn parents down. But Dr. Nader, we don't have any appointments. We don't have any. Well, we got to figure it out. right? Like we're going to we're going to continue to evolve and figure that out. But um, the one thing that I'll leave parents is. And it's like, you know, me being a parent with, with my three kiddos is I see this more with moms, but I think dads have it in them too. Um, they just don't talk up as much. But when you have that kind of like thing in you that says like something is wrong, like it, it's like an instinctual thing, you don't feel comfortable. You, you need to um, uh, move on that and uh, don't feel bad. You know, you may not have all of the education. You, you don't know why you feel that way. But make sure that you tell your provider, ask those questions. And I think the, the last thing on that is, and we've, ha we've had this happen a couple of times, you know, when you're like really in disagreement with the provider and your child is really ill, don't just leave and go, call it AMA. It just creates a lot more tension and CPS and stuff gets involved in that. I think you really have to like dig your heels in and just be there in those moments and say like, if you really don't agree with something and you don't want your child to have a certain kind of intervention, you've got to find a way to, and I know Texans for Vaccines Choice and there's some other systems out there where you can get maybe a medical professional. Again, that medical professional can't, like make the decision because your child is in that medical venue, but maybe they can give you a, a more articulate way to approach that or a different, you know, option to approach it. But you don't want to just take your child and leave. And in their eyes, your child is really ill. It, it can create a lot more complexities. So that's kind of the things that I um, would share, you know, um, closing out. Wonderful. Well, I this has just been just a delight. We are so thankful for our part. Texans for Vaccine Choice is very thankful for our partnership with Shine Pediatrics. We were honored to partner with you in your open house when you launched your Fort Worth, uh, you know, satellite office um, a couple of years ago. And we'd love to help you out if we can when you are ready to launch your Prosper office. And we're just so thankful for the very 
thoughtful and patient-centered care that you have provided for so many years to so many families. You are a treasure to to us and to so many, and uh, we just wish you the best and uh, all of God's blessings. Amen. Thank you so much, Rebecca, for all you do. You know, people don't really appreciate sometimes my families in the practice of how instrumental TFEC is in what you do. And we want to make sure that we continue to impress upon our legislators, the people, you know, that make the decisions about how important this issue is. Yes, sir. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Shot Callers podcast. Please, if you found value in this content, rate us and share the podcast with a friend. It's a great way to get the message out and to empower everyone to make informed decisions. Until next time, never forget, we are the Shot Callers.